Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. And it's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everyone, I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am super excited to share with you this week's In the Company of Friends talk with my honorary cousin, my honorary prima, Ana Castillo Marin. We are going to cover everything from her humble beginnings as a single parent, scraping to get by and provide for her daughters while getting an education at the same time, to becoming an entrepreneur that turned a home-based hobby, making personalized party products into an over $200,000 revenue earning business per year in about three years, to being the current owner of 42 thoroughbred racehorses in partnership with her husband, Hans Marin. They own Saints or Sinners racehorses. So we're going to go through a lot. This is a very inspiring episode. It's full of some great nuggets. You're really going to enjoy it. And because it is a long one, I'm just going to go ahead and get right to it. So please grab a cuppa and join me in this In the Company of Friends with Ana Castillo Marin. All right, welcome everybody. I am so excited to have my friend and honorary cousin. I probably should have said that in the in the uh, reverse order because all of my life I thought that Ana Castillo Marin was my cousin up until like maybe six years ago. So, but she is such a dear, dear friend. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. She is one of the most exciting, compassionate, bootstrapping fireballs that I know. She's co-owner of Saints and Sinners Horse Racing LLC with her husband, Hans. And they are a powerhouse partnership that has resulted in not just a strong and truly ever exciting marriage, but the acquisition of 42 beloved racehorses in partnership with West Point Thoroughbreds and Little Red Feather. She's a philanthropist, most recently partnering up with the Bucket List Foundation for a terminally ill man and his wife, granting his wish to see the Kentucky Derby in person. She also has a scholarship that we will be talking about soon. And she's the founder of the Successful Wrap It Up Wrappers, an organization that specialized in personalized party favors from which she's retired now. She's a wife, mother, grandmother, racehorse owner, lover of life, my honorary cousin, my prima, as we are fond of calling one another. And I am so proud and excited to share this amazing woman Anna Marin, 
So please grab a cuppa and join us for this exciting episode. Thank you, Sylvia. You're so wonderful. I'm so honored to be here. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. Thank God for, you know, Facebook, which is now Meta, reconnecting us and keeping us in touch. So many years have passed since our childhood when we were constant in each other's lives. And I just remember going across the street when I was just really a little kid and the Ayuinas lived downstairs in one apartment and my uncle Ricardo and Aunt Maggie lived upstairs and then you guys lived in, in another apartment and it was just like this big happy family. And I have to say that it was a huge surprise to me six years ago. <laughs> I lived my entire life thinking you guys were cousins of mine to find <laughs> out that we're not. <laughs> Sylvia, it is so amazing because whenever I talk about my childhood, um, you cannot discuss the childhood, my parents, my siblings, without mentioning the Ibarras, your entire family. We used to always say, well, we're having a birthday party, and one thing we can guarantee is at least 10 people will show up because they're all from the Ibarra family. And (laughs) I will never forget you guys were our family. We came from Costa Rica and we were the only ones um, from Costa Rica that came to the United States. It was my mom and my dad and then my oldest sister, Maria, Letta, and myself. My brother was born um, in 73. We, we came here, I think, in 68, something like that. And so we were the only ones. And you guys Your uncle, Ricardo, came. I think he came with my dad from Costa Rica to the United States. But then he brought, eventually, I think his parents, your grandma, your mom. Ruperto came with Marielos eventually. And then all you guys formed a family and had kids. And then they became our cousins. (laughs) Right, right. Because you were so much younger than I am. I never realized that you thought we weren't real cousins. And that is such a cute story that you tell that you thought for sure all these years we were we were real cousins and yeah. but it was always fun because every picture we have growing up you guys are all in them all of them all of your family members you and Tanya in our photos so those are precious memories and I just love the idea that I thought we were cousins what that represents that closeness of family blood related or not, you really think of one another as just indispensable. And that's, that's how I've always thought of you guys. And over that time, you've had such an illustrious journey, I think, to your current position as a founder of a racehorse organization. You spent 15 years at Berkeley as a public relations specialist and a senior editor for the university's numerous publications, including their catalogs and web designing for the bioengineering department, the campus events, and so much more. I mean, like you literally lived, ate, and breathed the college life. It was a position that required you to understand your audience which was also your subject, the students, the professors, visiting faculty, postdoctorate students, all of that. Describe your time there. Oh, it was wonderful. So when I first started at the university, I just started minor accounting. Yeah, who would have thought me accounting? Um, (laughs) Doing just minimal work. I just, we had moved up to the Bay Area and I needed a job. And I thought I need a job with insurance um, in some 
holidays off because I had two children. And so eventually I realized the importance of um, how can I move up the chain at Berkeley? I loved the atmosphere at Berkeley. As crazy as it is, I loved every minute of it. And I ended up going back to school and I majored in uh, mass communication with emphasis in public relations and journalism. And that it right away, because I had been there already, I believe, over eight years, I had gotten to know a lot of people on campus, even though the campus is huge. And a lot of people had moved around and become directors in other places. So I found this opportunity working at the College of Engineering in the dean's office. And then from there, I got to know a bioengineering new manager, the Department of Bioengineering had just formed, I think this was now um, 19, I want to say 1998, 1999. And it was the first department within the College of Engineering to form a department in over 30 years. So Berkeley was really behind the curve in biochemistry, bioengineering. So now they needed a publicist to come in basically and shout it to the world that Berkeley has a bioengineering department. It's not just Johns Hopkins, UC San Diego already had one. So that's where I got hired. And I was like, oh my God, it was a great opportunity that they gave me with pretty much very little experience because I had been doing accounting the whole time. But I had majored in this and I started writing press releases, doing a lot of undergraduate symposiums to attract people from all over the world to come to bioengineering. We were hiring faculty worldwide just to get the word out. So that was my job. And of course, like it is today, the website was the major focus and we had to create a new website for bioengineering. So that's where I came in and I did that. And I was just in heaven. I loved working at the campus. Without a doubt, we used to be over by Sproul Hall. So if you're familiar with the campus, Shattuck and Bancroft, and it was craziness over there. A lot of, you know, people are constantly doing protesting something, right? Right. <laughs> now I am in engineering and it's on the other side of campus and it is a lot quieter the engineering students are a lot more focused on their studies. There wasn't all this protesting on that side of campus. But if I ever missed it, I can just walk over for lunch and just get all the <laughs> the, the noise over at Sproul Hall. So it was the best of both worlds. I love Fridays. The band would walk around the entire campus drumming away for game day on Saturday, football, whatever it was. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. That sounds so exciting. Yeah. And I can hear it in your voice. I always thought I would retire from a campus environment. They always say we plan and God laughs because it's not at all what happened. <laughs> it's not. Um, you ended up moving after that. You moved to Idaho and you did think that you could continue mm-hmm to work from Idaho for Berkeley. Yes. Yes. So what happened was uh, my husband was involved in a dairy business. He started it. And they just believed that Idaho was a good central location for distribution. It was cheaper land, all this stuff. So I will always remember when I had to tell my boss that I was leaving and I just cried. 
So I didn't want to leave. I, but you know, I'm also a wife and I believed in what he was doing too. And we ended up moving to Idaho. So I started applying to Boise State. I tried so hard to get in, to interview, to get a job. And Boise State at that time was a small campus. And anything that I applied for, either they don't even have that position and they are not interested in it, or I just plainly didn't get the job. And it just devastated me. Oh, yeah, I cried a lot. I was like, I didn't understand. I thought I was so good at Berkeley. And who wouldn't want to hire someone working at such a great campus? But that was just not, it was not meant to be. And I ended up going into real estate instead. Then doing real estate, it was great. I thought, why didn't I do this earlier? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love working with people. Very obvious, working on campus with a variety of, you know, faculty and staff and students. And real estate was kind of almost the same, where you're trying to help someone get somewhere from A to B, you know, same thing like on campus, getting that student to graduate, right? In real estate, it was kind of getting that first time home buyer into their first home or having that seller sell their home to get to the next step of their lives into a bigger and better home. So I did that for almost eight years in Boise. Until we moved again. (laughs) (laughs) And you moved to Chicago? Yes. So then we moved to Chicago, um, again, because of my husband's dairy business. That's where their main offices are. We were only there for a year. It was a suburb called Burr Ridge. And um, he knew I missed home. And home for me was, you know, West Coast. Even though Idaho was beautiful, we loved Idaho. Very outdoorsy. My blood bleeds beach because I'm from Costa Rica and I grew up in Huntington Beach and it was way too cold in the Midwest. So we decided to try a little town called Chesterton up in Northwest um, Indiana, which is like an hour from Chicago and it was an hour from Michigan where they were building a dairy plant. It was the, around the Indiana Dunes and there was a sign that said three miles to the beach. And I thought, well, here we go. I'm I'm back at it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it was nothing like the beach in the sense of it had little waves and stuff. And I was happy with, you know, Lake Michigan that they call beach. Um, But there was just more cold and more snow than there was beach weather. I was just going to say that a lake beach, it's so different, you know, to an ocean beach. We get these big waves and it's nice weather. Whereas when you get the big waves at at a lake, it's definitely not nice weather. No. And actually the last year we were there, which kind of made me tell my husband, I I can't do this anymore. Was I think it was a 2013 or 14 where they had such a polar vortex is what they were calling it. Lake Michigan had up to 10 feet of snow above the lake. And it was like a mountain of snow that people were hiking up. Wow. It was just so, it was so bizarre, but it was, of course, so cold. And um, that's when I said, I I can't do this anymore. This is way too cold for me. And I'm fortunate that he is also a beach person. And he's not a a cold kind of guy either. Even though he's from Switzerland, he doesn't ski. (laughs) Uh, And he doesn't eat chocolate, so go figure. (laughs) 
but doesn't like the cold weather, even though he's Swiss. And I was grateful that he kind of said, yeah, I think I've, I've had enough of this weather. And he was in a position already with work to be able to make a move anywhere he wanted to go. But that weather is what got me. And again, so many people love it and enjoy it. And they, you know, there's really no skiing in the Midwest either because it's all flat. So in Boise, you know, we enjoy the weather because they did have snow too. And we can go up to the mountains 30 minutes away and do night skiing or go up to, for a snow day. It wasn't too bad because we knew for sure, you know, Idaho has four true seasons and that was going to come and go. But Chicago and in Indiana, the leaves change colors really pretty in the fall, but it's always still cold. I think I remember that polar vortex because I have a good friend, Matt, who is from Indiana and he and his family had gone back. They got stuck in a cabin like they couldn't even leave. He said the snow was up to the top of the, the door. When you opened it, it was just a wall of snow. So yeah. they were stuck in there for at least a week. And like, oh my God. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to, it for us, especially having lived in California, and then um, Idaho, which is very outdoorsy, to be kind of cooped up inside. And that to me was really hard. And he traveled a lot at the time. And I was just home by myself going, can't I just go anywhere? And then you can just fly home for that last week. So that's when we kind of started taking account into the quality of life, what we really enjoyed. So that in Indiana is when I started kind of rebranding myself and say, and I told my husband, I just don't want a nine to five job anymore. I need to come up with a, with something to do while you're gone and work from home. That conversation led you to your next move, which was to Arizona. Yes. So that led us to Arizona. Uh, my husband, <laughs> I think he kind of regretted it, but all he <laughs> said to me one day was, you know, we're thinking of building a plant in the West Coast. So instead of, you know, distributing their milk product, which at that time, it had now a new name, it went from Good Cow Company to Fairlife. And he goes, and that way we can distribute it to the West easier and more effectively. And I said, West? Oh my God, let's move back. I was so excited. <laughs> he goes, well, we're thinking about Idaho, California, or Arizona. And I thought, well, we still had our house in Idaho and I was willing to go back. But they didn't have direct flights at the time, and it was just not ideal. So Arizona became their target, and I said, I'll move to Arizona. I'll love it. <laughs> I love the sun. <laughs> right? I, I love the sun a lot. So he does too. Yeah, beach for miles, no water, but all the sand. <laughs> but, but it's got the sun, it's got the sand. Of course, everyone has pools. And there's a lot of topography here. There's a lot of mountains. It's not flat. It's not desert flat. So I was very taken away from that because I thought, oh yeah, desert, just sand and cactus, but not necessarily so. It's, I was willing to negotiate that and go, okay. So anyways, yeah, so we ended up moving out here to um, Arizona. I want to say it was 2014. And I think it was around July that he was talking about it. And by September, I kind of pushed it to let's move. I told him, we have got to move before winter. <laughs> I think that's why I said, I think he kind of regretted ever even bringing it up because we moved ahead of the schedule. And he told me, you know, I still have to travel. I'll be gone again a lot because 
my work is still in the Midwest. And I said, I understand. So it did work from 2014 till about, well, right about the pandemic in 2020. Then he's been home now ever since. He's semi-retired now. And and we think it was a great move. During that time period, you felt like you needed to put your creative efforts into a business of your own because the nine to five wasn't working. And you ended up starting a very successful business called Wrap It Up Wrappers, which specialized in personalized party favors and designed for the likes of Budweiser and Nike, just to name a few of your big clients. How did that start up? And how did you get into paper design? Yes. So based from my experience at Berkeley in web designing, I had a lot of the softwares that I had purchased for those times. And when we moved to Indiana, that's when I told my husband, I just can't have a nine to five job. You're gone all the time. And when you're home, I want to spend that little week you get, you you have at home or weekend that I have with you before you take off again. So I, I've always enjoyed personalization with gifts. So I, I was sewed and then I started sewing paper and just doing little cards with sewing stuff, stitches, you know, and then the idea started coming up to me of graphic designing based a little bit, like I said, from Berkeley, I would graphic design. And then now I was doing personalizations, pillows and pictures on pillows and all kinds of stuff. And then I just started putting things together. I thought I can do something with first, I thought candy bar wrappers, personalization. And then um, I started that in Indiana. And I just went, applied for a license, applied for the name. I came up with Wrap It Up Wrappers and started small, just candy wrappers. Then I started adding more product. People started asking. So I started making chocolate cigars for men's birthdays, weddings. Then people started asking if I do favor boxes, personalized. And then I started expanding on big banners, table signs, just all kinds of stuff. And it grew. So... I think the first year that I started it, I, my husband says, and I started probably mid-year. He says, oh, you made 8000 this year. And I was like, I was happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next year he goes, wow, we were doing our taxes. He goes, you did 40000 this year. I said, wow. oh, my God. And this is uh, revenue. This is, you know, after expenses. And um, all of a sudden, like the following year, I think I did 80000 and then it grew to over 200,000. That's amazing. And for me, you know, it wasn't bad. I, I enjoyed it. So one year living here in Phoenix, we, this is probably 2016, 17 or so, I get a call from a Nike representative. I thought it was a joke, <laughs> but it was not a joke. And um, she says, we're looking to do a pop-up shop. They were coming out with new sneakers. And it was weird because there's so many people who do what I do, mm-hmm. but somehow they found me and they said, we want you to personalize potato chips, Starburst, gum, chocolates, Snickers. The chips were Fritos. They call them Fitos, like <laughs> a play on words, right? right. Uh, Snicker bars were called sneakers now. So I designed all these personalization wrappers for them and put it all together. The gum, it was like the roll of tape of gum. They called it shoelace. So anyways, they wanted to have this play on words with their Nike brand because they were going to set up a big pop-up shop. 
and where sports, you know, celebrities would be walking through and kind of in this store. <laughs> That's kind of what it was. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. I didn't understand the concept at first. Then I went, Oh, and then I saw their play on words with lace potato chips. They'd call them lace potato chips. So they had this really cute concept. That's so clever. Oh, I it was over 7,000 products that I had to wrap and uh, ship out to them. Oh, my gosh. It was just amazing. And um, I had called UPS to come do a pickup, and I told them it was a pretty large pickup. The guy shows up, and all of my boxes, huge. <laughs> in, in, inside the garage and he looks at me he goes I gotta come back with an empty truck yeah literally oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you go from a small just doing something for small parties to all of a sudden doing corporate events yes so we did a lot USS Howard Budweiser ice a sparkling um, brand especially back in the day, uh, Christmas parties. Those were huge for businesses. What do I give out to our employees? Little party favors. So that's when a lot of companies started coming to us. I work with USDA and they always did mints in a little personalized favor box. And they put like uh, the Tic Tacs inside. We worked with USDA for almost three, four years in a row before I retired. I started calling us, you know, party favors and business marketing because that's what we became as well. What do you think made your business stand out so much that you were drawing the attention of the corporate companies? Gosh, well, one thing that I did pride myself in was I called myself a one-stop shop place in the sense of I will design, print, and ship from my home. I did not sell printables. They are still so many businesses out there that will sell printables. You'd print it yourself. And I get it. People want to do it to save money on labor. Totally get that. But I took my, my business to a totally different level of I am going to assemble everything myself so I know exactly how it's going to show up at your door. And I took pride in that. People would get mad because they want me to sell my designs. And I designed everything from scratch. It was all my personal designs. And so I'd say, I do not sell my designs. I don't sell printables because my take was, if I sell it to you, Sylvia, and you print it from your printer and it prints horrible, and then you package it yourself and it looks even worse, it's my name on there. People are going to say, oh, she did a terrible job. Well, maybe it was the printer. Maybe it was your paper. Maybe you're running out of ink. You know, you just don't know. Right. So I wanted to have control of my products when people received them, that it was a guarantee that it was going to look just as I advertise it on the internet. So I think that is what made us stand out. And then the reviews that we were getting were just amazing. There was always five-star review. And every now and then you get someone who was cranky. That's okay. But it didn't speak for the volume of people that just loved our designs and how we packaged it. And we made sure, especially chocolate, would never melt that it would arrive intact and in perfect condition. So I think that's what made us totally stand out. There was never a review that the chocolate melted or that the favorite boxes got all crinkled. You know, nothing like that ever was in the review. So um, that I think that is the major reason. 
I was listening to another entrepreneur on a podcast. I don't remember who it was, but she said that one of the things that her dad had always instilled in her was that no matter what she was doing, she needed to do it to the absolute greatest perfection that was possible for her. So if she was copying papers, she needed to make sure that she was producing these excellent copies. Yeah. It, and it it didn't matter what she was doing. Everything was done with excellence in mind. And it sounds like that's what you were doing. And that was one of the things, you know, I'm remembering it because that was one of the things that she said was a huge um, predictor of her success, or at least led her to the success that she's had now was, was having that attention to detail and really understanding that her work represented who she was. And if she was putting out excellence, it represented her excellence. And um, I'm sure that's what Nike saw and Budweiser and, and all of the other big names that you just mentioned. Well, and, you know, and, and part of my, my, I guess, expertise, you know, it didn't hurt that I was a journalism major, because one of the major things that you always want to make sure is you spell things correctly. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, I was so detailed to even making sure if somebody says, you know, her name is Kim. Okay, is it K-I-M or is it K-Y-M? Making every detail matter because this is someone's name and someone's special occasion. And I wanted to make sure that even to the littlest detail, to them it matters. And in journalism, you better not misspell anyone's name. This is their pride and joy. This is what they own is their name. And so that just extra details into uh, what went on in the designing of each product just meant a lot. And they all saw it. I would say I may be, be too detailed, but I'd rather be this way and make sure it is in perfect condition for when you get it. And that's what people cared about, the details, the little details that you probably don't even know. So many people misspell my name. They keep saying it's A-N-N-A, two N's. And it's not, it's one end, you know, and little things like that. If you don't pay attention, it's like, ah, oh, you know, shoot, I wish they had asked me. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to to have your name misspelled on junk mail or, you know, just randomly in a text or something. But when you've got a million party favors that have your name misspelled on every single one of them, that is a big deal. Oh, it's, yeah, it's. It could it could really ruin you, let me tell you. <laughs> and that's the stuff that costs you business. So, um, you know, I love that. I love that detail on there. During that time, were you already starting to bring in horses? So the the horses began with my husband when he was little. He was young. He was raised in Northern California. And he would always go to the Golden Gate Fields races with his buddy in high school. He says, we would ditch school and just go to the races. <laughs> so he says, one of the teachers said to him once, where do you guys go? You guys are missing class a lot. And they said, well, we go to the races. So then the teacher back in the day would say, well, put a bet on this horse for me. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, 
Well, back in the days, you know, nothing was, there was no social media and there was no texting your mom or anything. They, and they're like, okay, we will. So he, he loved that. He's always enjoyed horse racing and he's a sports guy. He coached basketball, played basketball through high school, but the horse racing is so, um, it's about numbers and statistics and, you know, and he loves all that. And he's a very uh, analytical, in that sense, kind of guy. And he just got attracted to it. So we get married and um, you put that passion aside. He just knew we've got kids to put through college. Back up when he was about 25, I believe, 24, he bought his first horse, a thoroughbred, to race at um, Golden Gate Fields. Oh, wow. I still have that picture. It's it's in his office, and it's a big photo in his first winter circle photo with his horse. His horse was called Undivided. How exciting. Yeah, it's pretty cute because his ex-girlfriend is in that picture, and I always told him, that's you. This is this is important. I love that. Everyone laughs. You, you she's in a big frame. I said it's okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, so um, about I want to say about seven years ago, he says to me, "You know, I want to go back to doing what I like doing, you know, as a hobby, very expensive hobby." And he says, "I'd like to buy a horse again." And I just looked at him and I said, "You know what? You've been an excellent dad." You put those girls through college, gave them beautiful weddings. Absolutely. It's your turn. Do whatever you want to do. I'll support you. So he bought a horse a month later. He goes, well, you know, you've got to have two horses. You can't just have one. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, two, two it is. All right. And by then he had joined two syndicates, one called West Point Thoroughbreds and the other one called Little Red Feather. Little Red Feather is West Coast, is Southern California based. And then West Point Thoroughbreds is more East Coast horses. So in his mind, you got to have, because they run in different tracks. So you got to have one of each. <laughs> okay, I bought into it. Then, I don't know, a few days go by, a couple months go by. And my sister calls me and my sister says, so how many horses do you have? I'm like, Hans, we still have two horses, right? He goes, no, we have six now. Six. Oh, my God. All right. So then another few months. And how many do we have now? 18. 18? Wow. So he started saying, I want to keep building my barn because there's far and few of the ones that really stick and you just don't know, right? It's such a tough sport. Yeah. So um, he he just started building it, building it. And last year we had about 60 horses. And what happens with thoroughbreds or this sport is uh, maybe sometimes they get claimed on a race. Maybe the trainer says, I've done all I could. I can't get them. But another trainer can do something better. It's no different from, let's say, any sport, right? You just try to find the best trainer for you. And so, so they sell the horses or they retire the horses. Maybe the horse just doesn't want to race. Maybe statistically, his mommy and daddy are great, but um, their foals did not turn out that way kind of like Secretariat. It's kind of shocking. Secretariat was such an amazing, powerful horse, but his offsprings didn't do much. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you you sell a lot and you, you know, you buy a lot. So then he started focusing on on babies, on yearlings and buying them, having them go to a farm first to learn the first things about horse racing. And then they take them to the bigger barns. And uh, I think this year we were at 42, but 
This year we did something for the first time. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you've caught it, but we've done something for the first time because last year, my husband, after 60 horses, he goes, well, it's not a hobby anymore. It's a business. And I go, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's not not a hobby. So we created our business name called Saints for Sinners. And the reason why we called it Saints for Sinners is first I joke about it because I go, well, I'm the saint and he's the sinner because <laughs> I don't gamble zero. I just, I like to dress up or go to the barns and that's my outing. But he does enough betting for both of us. So I don't do that. So I always tell him I'm the saint and you're the sinner. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. But in all reality, I kept saying to Hans, if we create a, a business name, it should be something about you because this is this is your hobby. This is what you love. This is your passion. I have my own. And uh, we started playing around and I said, Hans, your name. I don't think you know this story, Sylvia. And he goes, my name. And I go, your name, your name is Hans, which is John, right? Swiss is Hans. Uh, His full name is Hans Petter. It's just Hans Peter. And his middle name is Paul. I said, you're like a saint. Oh my (laughs) Your mom tried to make you a saint. I love that. Yeah. So that was so funny because I go, your name is like, has all these saints. Your mom tried. She threw it all out there. Hans <laughs> Peter Paul. <laughs> that is great. And that makes you the sinner. <laughs> <laughs> then that makes me the sinner. I love that twist. <laughs> That's so funny. But you know, I am not a gambler either. I mean, I, I have a heart attack if I lose a quarter. <laughs> I know. So... I'm I'm right there with you. I, I want to go to the events. I, I want to go and have fun, but I don't yes. want to lose any money. <laughs> I, I am like that and I will never change. You know, again, uh, in, on our website for Saints or Sinners, um, there's an about Hans and about me. And what I say about me is, hey, I love the dress up. I love the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the... Breeders Cup events where hats and you doll up in pretty dresses or pantsuits and shoes and a purse and there you go. I love that. But my favorite thing that I've enjoyed in the past couple of years since we really started focusing on the business is the backstretch workers, the backstretch, the being back there with the horses, the trainers, the everyday, the groomer. You know, everyone who has everything to do with that horse, the love and care of those horses is amazing. And these people wake up 3, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning every day, and they have to be there every day to feed these horses to the exercise riders to go stretch their legs out. And that has given me so much joy to see what goes on behind the scenes. Being back there at the barns, I absolutely love. Early in the morning, I don't care how cold it is. That's when I don't care how cold it is because I just bundle up. Um, when we go to Kentucky and it's, you know, wintertime, we just bundle up and I'm back there. I love talking to the workers, uh, to the trainers. You know, Eric Reed, who won the Kentucky Derby for uh, Rich Strike. That was an amazing story on Rich Strike. I couldn't believe yes. that, you know. And you're right, you know, this is going to be the people who are the most knowledgeable. They're the ones who know why a horse won, why it didn't, who, you know, what the jockey's strategies were, who the trainer is. I mean, there's so many people involved in 
the making of a racehorse. It's not just the jockey and the horse. There's there's a lot more. Like my husband says all the time when we have horses racing, he'll say, oh, they're, the odds are just not good, you know. And I'll say, oh, that's too bad. He goes, it doesn't matter. The horse doesn't know. And it's right. true. <laughs> the horse doesn't know that he's not the favored one. The horse doesn't know that the trainer is not a Hall of Famer. He doesn't know the jockey's not a Hall of Famer. The horse doesn't know. And same thing happened with Rich Strike and the Kentucky Derby. The horse didn't know. He didn't know he was, you know, in the 20th spot or that he just got put in 30 minutes before the deadline on Friday. He didn't know. And that is what goes to show you that as human beings, we shouldn't even care what people label us because we know who we are. The sky's the limit. He knew he was a winner. Yeah. Yeah, he he just had that winner's heart and just went for it. And that's so awesome. Yes. Yeah, Sequest was in um, the Kentucky Oaks first race. Right. But it, it was the first race. So it was a Kentucky Oaks day because the, the Kentucky Oaks race is different. It's towards the last of the day. So throughout the day, the horses, they have other races going on. So she, Sequest, was in one of the Phillies races, race one. But it wasn't the Oaks race. Like Kentucky Derby has all these races prior to the actual Derby race. So other horses can race. Like our horse Obesos from last year's Kentucky Derby. I don't know if you knew that, but we did have a horse race in the Kentucky Derby last year, 2021. And Obesos came in fourth. So we were so excited. And in in Kentucky Derby, only three-year-olds can race the Derby. So once in their lifetime can they race. So. Obesos was going to race Derby Day, but not for the Derby race. Same thing with the Oaks. So Sequest raced on Oaks Day, not for the Oaks race. She wasn't winning points for the Oaks because that's how they base it on points. So they have to get X amount of points to qualify for the Oaks race. And she didn't. But she was able to race on that day. But she didn't do very good. (laughs) Yeah, she didn't do very good. But I did want to say is... For the first time this in for Saints or Sinners, we bought our first four horses this year. So for Saints or Sinners, we want to start our own barn where what's the difference? Well, we're not under a syndicate. We are under our own and we have our own silks that we can run under. So our jockeys will race with the silks and um, it will be shown as owned by Saints or Sinners versus Right now, we have horses racing under West Point and under Little Red Feather. So we don't want to build our own syndicate. We're not going to be in that competition. We don't want to go there with the business. We just want to be able to have our own, we call it barn, and then allow us to name our own horses how we want it. So that's the newest with Saints or Sinners. That's so exciting. Okay, so now I understand what the posts were about. And so those yes. are for now for Saints or Sinners Barn. Um, they're not part of the two syndicates. Right. The only one is Silver Bullet, a two-year-old colt, is now at the Foley Barn. And Greg Foley is the trainer for Obesos, just so you can have an idea of who he is. We love working with West Point Thoroughbreds. They are amazing at what they do. And we will continue to buy horses with them as partners. But um, this was having the name together, owned by Saints or Sinners and West Point Thoroughbreds. So Silver Bull is now owned by both of us. 
they respect Hans a lot. Um, right now we have four, but or five actually. We have five. And West Point is the only one we have with one of these syndicates. And, you know, we were honored that they asked us. And like I said, it's just a little to add to the to the soup, let's say, a little more flavoring. Uh, we just... <laughs> We just enjoy right, it. Right. We we enjoy it. We want to just do this. And it's just something to play with. But we do enjoy it. And we thought, why not? So we had a, a company in Southern California design our silks. It has been absolutely wonderful working with them. And he was actually a high school friend of mine mm. who now is doing e-commerce for businesses. And we approached him and said, hey, can you design our logo and then convert that into our silks? And so they designed our silks and then we sent it off and our silks are already made. So whenever our horses start to race, the jockey will be ready. (laughs) That is so exciting. Yeah. How beautiful. Um, And I know that some of the horses that you've got in syndicate, like Beer Can Man, yeah. Got a first place at Del Mar in 2021. There was a Sorrento Stakes win. Yes. Also at Del Mar in 2021 for Elm Drive. First place for Mecklenburg. Mecklenburg, yes. yes. Mecklenburg at the Golden Gate Fields where Hans liked to go to so often. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And um, there was a third place for Strong Light at Churchill Downs, the same track where the Kentucky Derby takes place. Yes. Yeah. So that is so exciting. What does it feel like when your horses come in first place or come in in the top three? Oh, you know what? It is absolutely incredible feeling where they come in. Again, you always want to be proud of them because you don't want to just make it about being in the winner's circle. Every horse, you know, runs hard. Every horse, you know, they do what they're meant to do. But when they win... And they know it. They've got this little sass about them sometimes. Um, They know it. It is just such an amazing feeling because you know that everything that goes behind the scenes, all the workers, all the the groomers, the, you know, the exercise writers, the trainers, just everybody there are doing their best to keep that horse in top-notch condition, right? And then they win. And then you run to that winner's circle to get that photo with the horse right there with you. It's amazing. You know, the jockeys, the feeling that they feel every single time. It's just a great feeling. Sadly, because we have horses in in the East Coast and in the West Coast, not always can we go to every race and see them win. Sometimes I post things like that. We're watching it from the hotel room, a race, you know, because we're (laughs) somewhere else. Or Hans has stopped in the middle of the road and pulled over to the side just to watch a race because it means <laughs> every race means so much to him as it doesn't matter the amount. It's just, it just means you invest a lot. You know, they're not cheap. Even if you are in a syndicate and you buy 10% of it or 20% or 25%, it's still, it's a lot of money. So you do invest and you got to watch what you put your money in. So it's just amazing. We, so sadly we can't see every race. So now that we're building our own saints or sinners barn, I I told Hans, I go, well, you know what that means. We need to go see these horses race because who's going to be there cheering them on in the winter circle if it's not us? Right. (laughs) We don't have have a syndicate. We don't have groupies, you know, that people to come. So it would be very important for us to be there for that winter circle if they win. So we need to be there. And he goes, oh, I'm very aware. I go, okay. (laughs) 
So we'll, we'll be traveling west a lot now, too. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. So the barn's going to be on the west coast. Well, no. So we have horses right now with Foley, with West Point, and that horse, that Colt Silver Bowl, is in Churchill Downs. And then the other ones that we have, the other four, are with Glatt. Mark Glatt is our trainer for the West Coast. So Mark Glatt accompanied us to the Florida sales and helped us pick the sales according to what we wanted to buy according to budget, you know, we are a lot like Eric Reed, uh, Rich Strikes Trainer. He, in one of the interviews, he says, I'm not about the million dollar horses. I'm just about the little ones. And Hans has always said, I don't get into those high price horses. I mean, and I'm not saying it's lower end, but you know, our first horse that we bought at the Florida sales, um, it hasn't been named yet. We're still waiting on that. It was $50,000. So we're not going to be the folks that buy a million dollar horse. We would rather use that and just buy a spread because we believe just like Eric Reed, look at Rich Strike. That horse was claimed for $30,000. That is our mentality too. Like you don't have to have a million dollar horse, you know, to take you to the Derby or take you somewhere. To be a winner. Yeah. To to be a winner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we are of that belief. When I heard Eric Reed say that, I went, my God, that's exactly what Hans has been saying this whole time. That's why he kind of wanted to go on his own because he goes, I can go and say, I want to buy that horse. Maybe others have no, don't see much hope in it, but Hans does. So, you know, we could be right. We could be wrong, but that's the name of the game. It's anyone's, it's anyone's game, right? Basically after rich strike, everyone says that now is everyone's game. Exactly. Exactly. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, You never know. And, you know, something interesting that I wanted to get to is that you said that that first horse that you purchased is not named yet. Yes. And there's a lot of um, tradition in naming racehorses. You name them by their pedigree or their bloodline, their lineage, historical meaning of the uh, dam or the sire, which in non-industry speak is the parents. So is that why it's not named yet? You're still going through all of that research? Great, great question. So many people ask us that all the time. How how do horses get these weird names or crazy names or whatever? (laughs) So I'll give you an example. Um, Yes. First, to answer that one question, we have to submit it to the jockey club who authorizes or approves the names of the horses. They go through to make sure you're not duplicating someone's name. So you do submit it and it, it's waiting for approval. So two of our horses are waiting for approvals that, that we've named. Um, the one horse named How Be It, all one word, was already named when we claimed him. So that's his name. So let me take you to the process of Jackson Traveler. He is Steve Asmussen, who is a well-renowned trainer, also trains Epicenter, who will be racing in this Saturday's Preakness. Epicenter also ran in the Derby, came second. So Jackson Traveler has a great trainer with uh, West Point Syndicate with Jackson Traveler. They said, would you guys like to name this horse? And we had a grandson who was born too early at 24 weeks and passed away at seven weeks. And we always told our daughter that if we ever could name a horse, we would name it after baby Jackson. So 
now comes this opportunity and we're supposed to name this horse. And we were told the pedigree comes from, it's a Munnings horse is what we were told, Munnings. And I'm thinking, well, what is Munnings? I had no idea. Well, I started researching Munnings and where did the name came from? Way back in like 1917 uh, to the 1950s. There was a painter, a horse painter named Alfred Munnings. Somewhere along that line back in the day, someone named their horse Munnings after Alfred Munnings. And so that's how it's known now. It's a Munnings horse. And a lot of times you'll see when they call the daddy, they'll say it's a Munnings horse. And you just go, oh, okay. But a lot of people don't know what that means. I had to research it. So I said, Munnings. And he's a horse painter. That okay. So I went that angle and I started researching all the paintings that Alfred Munnings did. If he ever named one named Jackson just by chance. Nope, didn't get that one. But I did see where he painted a horse called Traveler. And I said to my husband, there you go, Jackson Traveler. And we submitted it and it was approved. Wow. So that's how kind of you start. That's how we do it. Um, the ones that we're naming right now, I think one of the horse that is on waiting, I think the daddy is called Wicked Strong. And so Hans had a lot of fun trying to name that one. I'll tell you, I'll do a spoiler alert. We don't know which one got approved, but we submitted Devilish Desire and Saintly Strong. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And the second one that we're waiting for, I'll do a little spoiler alert, is our granddaughter, Aria. And um, this filly comes from a Bolt Dioro. And a Bolt Dioro is one of the top sires. It has sired amazing foals. And so one of them that we submitted was called Aria's Lightning Bolt. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So we'll see if that one gets uh, approved. So since we started that with Jackson, we're going to do that with Aria. And then uh, we have another granddaughter named Alessandra. So we'll see where it goes with that one too. But right now, the first filly that we get will be for our first granddaughter, and that would be Aria. So yeah, we're excited. Aria's lightning bolt. Those are wonderful names. Yeah, sometimes I look at the names of these horses and I think, oh my gosh, where did they get that from? So I love that history. And I also love that when we were talking about having a horse win, that your first response was that you have to be proud of the horse no matter where it lands in the lineup of that race because they are working so hard and um, it just shows how much care is provided to these animals. And I love that. They are very, very loved and very cared for. And the community, the horse racing community, they do a lot of fundraising and a lot of charity for backstretch workers. So for every rate, every horse that wins first, my husband and I support backstretch workers through this foundation. We also provide financial help for injured jockeys. And we also do a lot of charity work for horses. They call it um, after care. So after they've raced and they've given us their best years. So there's a lot of little farms that are out there that take them in 
for retirement. So we provide, you know, again, financial assistance to all these farms that provide care for these athletes. They give us the best entertainment, you know, sometimes the best two minutes in sports, as they call it, in the derby. And so we do need to take care of our animals, you know, um, these athletes, as we call them, thousand pound athletes. Um, One of the other things that you're doing with uh, the Saints and Sinners horse racing is you teamed up with the Bucket List Foundation. Oh, yes. And you were able to bring Bill and his wife, Lori, to the Kentucky Derby and make his dream come true. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this was such an amazing, just kind of like a huge surprise that just came down from heaven and landed right on our laps. I knew this gal, Amanda, from where we previously lived, and we just kind of stayed in touch. And she has seen my post about horses, derby, last year going to the derby, etc. And she reached out this year and said, hey, Anna, you know, I have a friend of mine who is the founder of this organization called the Bucket List Foundation. And it's basically to provide last wishes to terminally ill seniors. And this man's dying wish is to go to the Kentucky Derby. And she said, can you just guide me to how to, what experience I can give them? Like, just guide me. So I said, sure, we've got a slew of ideas. She goes, we don't know anything about it. So we were just so excited. We just wanted to take Bill like on our own <laughs> for him to have the ultimate experience. And at that time, Hans had said to me, I don't think we're going to go to the Derby this year. When we met them, we told them we may not be able to go. However, this is things that he can do. And through Saints or Sinners or through West Point Thoroughbreds or through Little Red Feather or combine the three, we can give him a great experience somehow. It was funny because Kimberly said, well, I'll be praying that hopefully you change your mind. And um, eventually we did. It's a kind of a, a group thing to do. It's just more fun with, with people you know. Such a big event. Pardon the dogs if you can yeah, hear Yeah, I them. could hear them. Um, It's so big that we were so glad we were there to guide them. Not that they would have maneuvered themselves through it all, but it did make it so much more fun. And I said to Bill and Lori, I'll be your paparazzi from the minute you, you guys get there. So we started the whole event on Thursday where we did early morning barn visits, took them back there to see all the horses, to meet the trainers, groomers, you know, just to see what goes on back there. I saw the video, the video. They, it looked like they had so much fun. Oh, they had such an amazing time. West Point arranged a barn visit to one of the most famous farms out there. It's called Lanes End Farm and got to meet Quality Road. So if you see that a lot, of, just like, let's say, a Munnings horse, this is called a Quality Road horse. Um, and then we did a, a lunch and then we had cocktails that evening and then Friday was Kentucky Oaks and we sat near them so we were there the whole time capturing every minute of it and then on Saturday at the Derby they Pat Day his statue he's got his arms raised up looking up to the sky and I said to Lori Bill you guys do the same <laughs> thing and it's too bad we don't always live like it's our last day I think one of the country singers sings that song I live forget like you were dying but There you go. And Lori goes, no one else copied us. No one else. I said, you know what? Because they're not on your journey. If they were like, just let loose. 
and have fun. And so it became such a pretty photo of them. I did see that photo. I loved it. It's a fabulous photo. Oh, yeah. And on Saturday after the Derby, when we were saying our goodbyes, all of us just were in tears. But that's not the end of the story because this Saturday for the Preakness, we've invited them over to our house. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And they're coming at 830 in the morning. Jackson races at 915 in the morning. And so I'm so glad that the friendship continues. I am too. Oh, that is such a wonderful continuation of that story. And, and, and Bill, you know, man, he just is one strong man. We had given him options. Here's the itinerary for Thursday. We have the barns. We have the lanes end. We have uh, lunch. We have cocktails. Tell us what you want to do. And he came back and he said, I want to do it all. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Bill wants to see Jackson Traveler race. And we're just so excited. It's like, yes. I'm so excited for you guys. Yeah, and thank you. And, you know, I just marvel at everything that you do. You do so much and you're such an inspiration. I'm always thrilled that I get to call you my honorary prima. Yes. And I just wanted to bring up another thing that you're doing, which is this scholarship. Oh, yeah. It's a scholarship program that's in its second year, right? Yes. It's in its second year. Las Positas College, that's who I'm working with. It's for single parents. When I approached them, I said single mom because I was a single mom when I went back to college and I relied so much on financial aid and any scholarship, you know, free money that I can get. And and they corrected me and they said, well, we can't say single moms. We can say single parents. And I said, you know what? You're right. There's so many dads in the same situation as I was in. So I am all for that. So it is for single parents. I went back to school as a, I believe I was 30, almost 31 years old. Went back to school for the first time in, I think, 13 years. I went a little bit after high school, but then life took me to marriage and children and stuff, and I never finished. And this time I wanted to go back and finish. And I relied so much on Las Positas Community College to guide me with not just a student loan, but with any financial aid help I can get. And they were so kind. They'd sit with me every quarter and go, or I don't know if it was quarter semester system, but they would go through it and say, you can apply for this. Oh, we have a new one and apply for that one. And they helped me so much. And I got through my first two years that way. Then I transferred to Cal State Hayward and finished my last two years for my bachelor's. But the fact is that I had told my husband, if I ever could afford it, I'd like to be able to offer a scholarship to a single parent. And he never forgot. And two years ago, we were fortunate enough that we could do it. So I contacted Las Positas Community College, and I asked for the two ladies who helped me, Anne and Andy. And they told me that Anne had retired, but that Andy was still there. And she was overwhelmed. She says she remembers my story wow. as a single mom and tells that story to people all the time of my financial struggles. And not that I'm the only one who's ever gone through it, but just the things that I had gone through that were pretty unique. Mm -hmm. And um, I told her, I said, I always promised that I would be back. And I always promised myself in my heart, if I ever could, I will. Unfortunately, the timing was so bad because I put up a scholarship for two students in 2020. Schools were shut down. Oh, no. The COVID hit. And I was so disappointed. I thought, are you kidding? So... 
Last year, I offered two scholarship opportunities to single parents, and I think we only got like two applications, and one was not a single parent. And I just said, I'm going to have to decline that one because I'm principal of the, of the scholarship. Right. I want to keep it real and true to what its purpose is. And its purpose is to provide assistance to a single parent, someone who absolutely has no way to turn like I did. And all they have is the college, someone out there reaching out and saying, here's some cash. I made it very similar to my living. I don't care what degree that is not important to me, but they do have to have a purpose to transfer to a four-year university GPA, but at 3.0, they do have to provide financials and not be living with someone helping them financially. Just now, uh, last week, I submitted my recommendations for my candidate for this upcoming year's scholarship. Oh, that's so exciting. I am super excited that I'm making a difference in a student's life, a single parent student's life. And that little bit helps. I know it does. I also, in the requirements, I don't care what they use it for. I don't care if it's for books, if it's for tuition, if it's for food, if it's for gas. I didn't put stipulations on that because as a single parent, it's all in the same. I'm so glad when I was filling out the scholarships that some people didn't limit me mm -hmm. because maybe I needed it for food. You know, I was working part-time to keep my benefits from Cal Berkeley. I think I was only making 10000 a year. Wow. And I didn't want someone to say it has to only be for books or for tuition. Right. I needed it to even feed my kids. So I wanted the same thing for this single parent. Yeah. Those struggles when you're trying to make it there at the beginning, that is so important. And giving back, I just, I just think that's really inspiring. And part of our responsibility as we move forward in reaching these successful levels to give back to those who are trying to get to where we're at. Yeah. And it's some of the stories that the essays that they write are so heartbreaking. You just sit there and just go, I've been there. I know exactly what you're going through. Sometimes you feel so alone because you feel like no one gone through it or no one can understand, but I'm their voice to say, I do understand. This is why I'm doing this. Uh, I think they'll be announcing it actually today. Oh, and uh, as soon as, yeah, and as soon as the college notifies me, I'm going to announce it again on social media of who we've selected. But it's just such a great honor to be able to do that. You know, life is about making one difference at a time. You just kind of move through life with this grace and gratitude and openness of making the world a better place no matter what you do. And I admire that so much. Thanks for being such a great role model. Oh, thank you for saying that. If you had one thing to share with the world, what would it be? Well, I think most of us, and I'll speak for myself, have been knocked down left and right. And sometimes we don't understand those struggles, those challenges that we're faced. Just always lead with your heart. Be a blessing to someone. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think you're definitely a blessing. Um, where can people find Saints and Sinners horse racing and learn more about what you do as well as the horses? SaintsOrSinnersHorseRacing.com is the website. Uh, they can also follow me on Instagram at Anna Marin or Anna G. Marin. I had one personal account and one for Wrap It Up Rappers, and I convert, converted both of them to horse racing. <laughs> so there you go. I have two different audiences, so I have two accounts. And um, in our website, 
for Saints or Sinners Horse Racing.com. There is also Meet the SOS Barn, and you can see the, the five horses that we have for Saints or Sinners, which means, again, when they race, they'll race under the silks, which the silks is the jockey's jacket. So it will be the Saints and Sinners uh, logo. So you'll see the barn there. And as we name them, we'll be putting the names on there. If anyone ever wants to visit Santa Anita, we'll post when we'll be there. And we always welcome visitors. We'll be at Del Mar for a whole month, July 21st through August 20th. Wonderful. Yeah. And we love to take our friends and family over to the barns. Thursday through Sunday, they race. We estimate almost um, all the race days that were there will have at least one horse racing. Oh, from either the syndicate or from Saints or Sinners. How exciting. And again, a day at the races, again, you know, great time to go look look at them. And if we're if we win, you get to go with us to the winner's circle too. So that's a bonus. <laughs> oh, how exciting. Okay. Yes. Well, you know, I'm gonna be visiting. I, I do invite people to visit the Bucket List Foundation also and see where else maybe they can help. Unfortunately, not everybody wants to go to the Derby. So I'm sure there's other wishes out there that they can participate in. And I do want to give a shout out to the people who did do our logo for Saints or Sinners and designed our silk, Diana and Clark. Colby, and they are with Spectrum E-Commerce. They're in Irvine, California. Now we're working with them for caps and probably polo shirts with SOS. And they'll be making those for us. So when we go to Del Mar for that month, we'll be passing it out to our biggest fans, Sylvia. So show up so we can give you one of them goodies. I will be there. I want that yes. SOS swag. And there you go, <laughs> swag. That's it. <laughs> What a great time catching up with my prima, the inimitable Anna Marin. There are so many pearls of wisdom in this episode, whether you want to learn more about thoroughbreds and the saints or sinners horses, glean insight into how to have a successful business, or be inspired by how ingenuity and hard work can turn a bad situation into blessings. I hope that this episode brought just some of that into your life. As always, I'll post links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. So please continue to send me your questions, suggestions. I love hearing from you. And don't forget to take a moment to rate this episode. It only takes seconds and your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I am looking forward to sharing many more in the company of friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am still Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion grace, adventure, focus, ingenuity, drive, elegance, and beauty.